You're listening to Lane Radio, the hottest show this side of Diesel. Greetings and welcome to episode 13 of Lave Radio, the show that talks about the universe of Elite and the development of the computer game Elite 4, Elite Dangerous. I'm your host, Fozzer Forrester, and after a small holiday planet side at LaveCon, the team is back in the Sidewinder on Lave Station. Settling in for the long haul this evening, we have our 13th warrior, John Stabler. Good evening. Our Oceans 13, Chris Jarvis. Hello. And finally, our Friday the 13th, Alan Stroud. Cheers, Foz. Now, it's been a while since we did one of these shows. It seems to have taken us a little while to get over LaveCon. I know that Chris and John put out an emergency episode last week to talk about their favourite bits. But Alan, why not start us off this week with what your favourite bit of LaveCon was and what's been happening in the land of Stroud? Favourite bit of LaveCon? I think seeing all the authors and all the different people, meeting Michael Brooks and meeting you know such committed fans. I mean, actually, just looking from the front table and, and even from when I was sat not at the front table... Just looking around at people and meeting people in the bar, just seeing how committed everybody is to a great game. So let's hope we get a great game. And Late Night Buckaroo was pretty good. Um, <laughs> and stuff I've been up to. Teaching's finished for now, which is good. I'm now on leave, which is great. Been to Rome, took 1,700 pictures or something like wow. that. Wow. So yeah, yeah, I've been uh, <laughs> going through those. And what else have I done? Finished Elite Lave Revolution, the album, which is great. So, yeah, well, it's great to finish. I'm hoping that, um, you know, other people will tell me it's great to actually listen to. And that's gone up on SoundCloud, so anyone can go and have a listen to it on SoundCloud. We've got a link on the front page of the Lave Radio site, which is very cool. And, of course, those backers that backed me to a high enough level who were incredibly generous... Um, they get an opportunity to have the MP3s for themselves. So they've been able to download those for the last week or so, I think. Oh, I think it was Monday I put it out. So then back into the writing, just started again with going on with Elite Labor Revolution. I finished the other book I was writing, which is good. So that's now into editing. So that's fun. From my point of view, LaveCon, uh, some of the things that you know, I really enjoyed, certainly the cake came as a complete surprise. The uh, Coriolis cake made by Void Sun was uh, absolutely awesome. I know we've got some pictures on Facebook of that. It was <laughs> it exceeded my expectations, should we say. That's uh, my second technician moment where I broke my microphone just as we started doing the show. The look of concentration on Jarvis's face as he attempted to play his guitar in the dark. The three one-of-a-kind concept art from Michael Brooks and just basically the generally the friendliness of the LaveCon crew. And considering it was a, a shoestring idea, everybody was very forgiving when things you know, didn't really go according to plan. And everybody just got really involved. Uh, my biggest fear was that we would open the floor to questions to, to Michael Brooks and we'd just be faced with a wall of silence. Speaking of Michael Brooks, that poor guy didn't get home until 3am. So big thank you to him for coming along and you know, sticking out as long as he did. Outside of that, we've got uh, a couple of things going on. We've launched RetroLave, and for those who haven't listened to it yet, the idea for it is that we've got a, together a group of gamers on a Monday night. We sit down for a couple of hours and play and then review um, one of the classic space sim titles from years gone by. Uh, so far, we've done Wing Commander 1, Conflict Free Space, Privateer, X-Wing, and this Monday we'll see Episode 5, which is Tacky on the Fringe. 
The gaming session's open to anybody, and I will give you the contact details at the end of the show. But the nice thing about Retrolave is there's always one member of the team that comes on and always feels very passionate about the game that we're about to play. And it's always reasonably brutal that uh, <laughs> by the end of the session, the people that are really passionate about the game that have come to it with their rose-tinted spectacles on are normally absolutely crushed before the uh, the two hours. So uh, that's been quite interesting pulling it together. A big thank to uh, to Grant Woolcott for, for helping out with that one. I've also been quite busy pulling together something for a competition that we'll be having running in a few weeks. The prize will be a special LaveCon gift. We'll have more of that in the community section. And lastly, we have episode three of The Conclave, which is currently going through a very long editing period with me. Uh, that should have just been released as you're listening to this. So thanks to those who took part in that and also sent in contributions. Uh, the subjects for that were should Elite Dangerous try and emulate MMOs and the topic of control systems and user interfaces in Elite Dangerous. So hopefully you've listened to that. Okay, so John, what has been going on in the world of Stabler? I've been very busy with work, but I have been working on Battle for Lave Station Ray. before anybody asks. Yes. What, what's happened, basically, I don't want to go into too much detail, I don't want to bore people, but originally the way it was going to work was there was going to be a single global server. But I learned a lesson after my um, commodity market, because the take-up of that was ridiculous. So I've actually been reworking some of the server code so that um, people can host their own servers and things like that. And I'm hoping to get that all done and dusted in just over a week there'll be something happening. Well, I'm sorry it's taken longer, but um, work and real life and LaveCon and editing podcasts and things kind of all took over. So uh, uh, I'm on the case. There's a renewed love for it. So it, it, will, ha- it will be happening soon. You seem to have had um, <laughs> podcast withdrawal symptoms, mate, because not only did you and Jarvis do a special alias Jarvis and John... Uh, episode, but you've also, I believe, done an interview episode as well. Yes, thanks for reminding me, uh, because I completely forgot I did that. <laughs> I thought you might have done. <laughs> yeah. So what happened was I just had this brainstorm one evening. Oh, I was talking to John Harper on Skype, that's what it was, and we were just talking about the forums and, and how um, sometimes it's quite hard to communicate your feelings on certain game features that have been suggested and things like that because the forums just usually devolve into some kind of like shouting match where my subjective appraisal of this is that it's good is just pitted against someone else's appraisal saying it's bad. I thought it'd be great if there was some kind of a podcast where people could come and just basically say what they thought of certain things that were happening. So I just said to John, when you're available tomorrow morning, great, we'll do it. So I recorded a, a I think it's about half an hour, maybe just a little less episode talking specifically about the game. Um, although I think he still managed to plug his book a couple of times. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't expect anything less. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He's dedicated. So I'm dreading Alan Stroud. But <laughs> So yeah, so I'm just looking for people who are, who are willing to throw together some good, interesting thoughts on game features in particular. And the big one for John was smuggling, which I'm sure we'll get to later. Yes, indeed. Mr. Jarvis. What have you been up to? I have been working on... I've sort of been working on some websites because I've been sort of pressing on with things like Escape Velocity. And then I started this Animal Crossing fiction piece. And I've got a little bit behind with my kind of tidying up and actually having websites about these things and actually letting people know where they are. So in the last few weeks, I've sort of been pulling stuff together. So if you do go to escapevelocity.laveradio.com, there is a whole new web page for Escape Velocity, which I'm afraid doesn't have any new episodes on it. It just has the last six episodes kind of arranged a bit more neatly. And then there's also radiotheaterworkshop.com, 
which is the website I've set up. There's the production behind uh, Escape Velocity and the Animal Crossing blog and the Labour Evolution audio drama and anything else that, that happens to be worked on at any given moment. And then there's also animalcrossingnoir.blogspot.co.uk, which, as Alan will attest, is, is highly entertaining, even if you don't <laughs> really care about Animal Crossing all that much. I'm hoping that it's quite accessible. Uh, yeah, you came up with a very interesting idea in that the premise of the game is a little bit weird. What you've done is played on the premise of the game <laughs> in a slightly disturbing way, which I thought was very clever. So, yeah, yeah. No, it was very entertaining. It made me chuckle. Okay, kicking us off this week, we've got the Meet the Team section done by Ashley Barley on the forums where he will interview members of the Frontier Development team. The first one we're going to go to is Selena Frost-King. Now, Alan, I believe you've been doing a bit of reading on this. What came out of that interview? Well, it was quite interesting, really. I teach a little bit of visual effects and do a, a few other bits and pieces with visual effects and the visual effects course. To hear from somebody who's involved in producing the visual effects, particularly things like explosions, smoke effects and so on and so forth, is is really useful and uh, and interesting to see. She came across and described an awful lot of the, the things that she does in an everyday job and also the bits and pieces of what they're trying to get in terms of looking at something and try and emulate it by getting examples from other things and trying to make those the way in which things would work in the game. I think it's really cool. I mean, there's a very cinematic approach to what they're looking at. I guess, balanced a little bit with realism as well. And yeah, you know, because they obviously want Elite to be very realistically based wherever they possibly can. And it's nice to have a bit of discussion about things to do with sort of how particles are worked on for these final renders of explosions, how smoke works, how some of the other trails work, and and how some of those things physically would work in space as well. So so yeah, I I felt from the interview that we got a bit of a, a link into somebody's mind who is trying to think about things in a particular way. I thought that was really interesting. Not to be the parsy pooper and all of this, but when I was reading that, I couldn't help but think, I know we're trying to sort of marry this with realism. The question that always bugs me, is it possible without any oxygen in space in a complete vacuum to have any form of explosion whatsoever? I mean, would you get that sort of that yellow flame explosion that we see down here on Earth? Or would it, uh, is that just sort of a myth made up by science fiction? Well, Babylon 5 makes an interesting point because... Um, I think they actually covered that in one of the episodes that when you see the little sort of explosion plume of the ship, it's actually the, the, the pilot's atmosphere in the ship burning up. If we're talking about pilots living and working in these ships, there is a certain amount of oxygen in there that will burn. Um, and will that ignite in space, though, in a vacuum? As it gets yes, it just won't out? burn for long. It'll go okay. out quite quickly, would be, would be my understanding. Yeah, it'd be more of a, a, of a pop than um, a massive blowout but then again i suppose it depends on your cargo i mean how cool would that be that if you're actually transporting oh, also, oxygen yeah. that you get a bigger explosion because you would have a, you know a larger you know mass of something to, to burn there the problem is and this is probably what a lot of people would say is because they refer it to refer to it as the, the hollywood explosion mm. you know a massive ball of fire the problem is you know the human brain is trained to visualize things in a certain way it's been highly tuned to the hollywood explosion that's what people are expecting to see and so i'm sure all the geeks are going to be there going ah it wouldn't look like that you know it'd be a very quick explosion and and you wouldn't see that much flame but most people would probably find it odd so you've got two things going on there you've got the realism aspect and then you've got the delivering on what most people are probably going to expect yeah i agree with that john i think we can kind of relate that back a little bit as well because you've got alien the tagline of the film in space no one can hear you scream you go into the first few minutes <laughs> where the ship is introduced 
and the ship flies over your head just like Star Wars and you hear the engines and you hear everything that's going on. The audience has kind of evolved with some of these these concepts and some of these ideas and you've had films and TV series come out where they've tried to introduce more of a realistic idea to create their own aesthetic. A bit tricky for Elite Dangerous really in that to a point it's going to have to create its own aesthetic but they've also got to make it connected enough to what people's current perception of the tropes are. Although modern graphics cards have progressed quite a bit with things like um, particles and the smoke, stuff like that, the great thing about fire explosions is they lend themselves quite well to billboarding, which is a nice, easy technology, which is very easy on a graphics card, but can produce some very good explosion effects. And so it wouldn't surprise me if they do want to kind of leverage that kind of technology still. Billboarding? Okay, so what billboarding is, is do any of you remember playing Doom? Vaguely. Yeah. Right. Do you remember in Doom that when you span around and you rotated around on the spot, the walls acted 3D, but on the floor, things like packs of ammo would always be facing you in the same way, yeah? Yeah. Well, that's a billboard. So instead of making the boxes 3D, basically what it was was it was a textured plane which always faced the camera. And so, in effect, it was a sprite. And you'll find that most explosions in video games are actually a plane which is made to always face the camera, and then they just render an animation of an explosion on it. And it's a lot easier to do it that way than to somehow try and create a proper particle effect of an entire explosion. It's also the way they manage these things in films as well, because an awful lot of post-effect generated explosions are done literally as a paste-on. So... I guess it's a similar thing in that you're creating an illusion of a three-dimensional effect in a two-dimensional layer. Indeed. Moving on then to the Meet the Team interview with Mike Evans. Now, John, I believe you've been reading up on this. Who's Mike Evans? (laughs) (laughs) That is gold. He's a man with a Rubik's Cube, uh, an Xbox controller, two monitors, and some kind of gamepad that I don't recognise, so I probably missed that particular generation of gaming, I expect. Hi, Mike. (laughs) Loving your work. Apparently it's for a helicopter. For remote uh, awesome. So he, he works on that. And he appears to have an empty pint of beer on his desk as well. Loving his T-shirt. Not so good on the camo pants. John, uh, you know, I think that you should probably comment on the camo pants too. Sorry, I'm just astounded at the fact that you're giving fashion tips, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, I've fashioned for radio. It's, it's fine. Now I believe, John and Chris, you've, uh, you've been doing a bit of reading into his interview. What, do, uh, what can you tell us? He's a big fan of the show. Really? Yes, yes. We gave him a shout-out in, in the last one. He was feeling a little left out, love him, because, um, as we said, both me and Jarvis weren't members of the DDF until this week, and maybe we should explain I was gonna why. I going to say, actually, that's probably not a bad... Yes, that's a good segue. Is that where you were going? No. You're a genius host. Anyway, so what happened was um, Chris Jarvis and I received a lovely email from Ashley Barley telling us that... Um, some lovely anonymous person donated or upped or jaunted, whatever you want to call it, so that we could have DDF access and alpha access as well. Christ. So, yes, indeed. I don't know if it was Christ. <laughs> Although I, he's closest thing to God as far as I'm concerned, apart from David Braven, obviously. <laughs> hey, unless it was him. I don't know. So whoever you are, anonymous person, I've got my suspicions who it is, but I'm not going to say just in case it's not, <laughs> obviously. So um, thank you to you, Mr. Anonymous John Tier, who's given me DDF access so that I can go on there and cause trouble on a whole new forum. 
Oh dear. Well, I mean, thank you, Mr. Anonymous, for making my part of this podcast completely obsolete. But that's great. No, it's great to have the extra two people on the DDF and it's an amazingly generous pledge. I find it a little bit overwhelming. Yeah, I'm not, as, as, as Alan will tell you, I'm not always necessarily very good at taking compliments to my face. Because the way I see it is, you know, this is about the podcast and this is about making sure that all four of us can kind of contribute in, a, in, in sort of an equal way, in an informed way to the discussion. But I just find it overwhelming that someone would like what we're doing enough to kind of stick their hand in their pocket that much and say, you know, this is to support you guys being better. And it's just a bit, I, I find it, I find it absolutely humbling. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, he was so gobsmacked that the first thing he blurted out to me was, oh my God, that means I'm going to have to start reading the forums. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my world. <laughs> I mean, what, what level were you guys on? Well, I was on 100 quid, which was the, the first round beta. So um, thank you very much. Yes. Yes. I, I, yes. I, was, I was a long way lower than that. <laughs> you had a decal, didn't you? No, no, no. I think I was on about 35 <laughs> quid, maybe. I think I wanted so you to... were going to get the game? I think I was going to get the game, the book. I forget. It was around that level. It was somewhere around. Okay, so I think uh, a big thank you then from you two, and also from Lave Radio as a whole, because it sort of takes the pressure off Alan and I to... Uh, to keep on um, trolling the uh, the DDF forum. You know, that job's now gone over to Mr. Stabler, who's much more suited to the task. So a big thank you. And again, yeah, I mean, it is humbling to the whole show that uh, that people are prepared to support us in that way. So massive thank you for that. And uh, back to Mr. Mike Evans. Segwaying in beautifully actually does, by all accounts, produce quite a lot of the DDF stuff that we uh, we actually read on there. And in fairness, I do have to apologize seeing as it's been that's been reading the ddf up till now yes mike evans has in fact been producing quite a lot of the ddf stuff and every week that he's been doing it i forget to mention him so the blame really has to go on my head there so sorry mike uh we won't do it again and in fact we might even refer to the ddf section in future as just the mike evans section he's also a starwing fan which i was happy about because i was a starwing fan big up the starwing yeah, okay, but I was going to say, for those of us that haven't heard of Starwing, you might want to explain that. Starwing is the, or was the, the 3D space, it's hardly a simulator, because you're not actually in the ship, the ship flies in front of you, sort of. Uh, oh, it was the Nintendo Star- thing. Yeah, yeah, it was the yeah. SNES. Um, SNES Star- yeah, yeah. yeah, it, Star- it was, Fox, it was yeah. released in the UK as Starwing. Well, I'm a big fan of that as it well, had to the, be fair. the Super FX chip in the game cartridge, so it was the first Super Nintendo game to have that kind of, of 3D graphics. I loved it. I thought it was great. And, you know, you could do barrel rolls and stuff in the uh, in the <laughs> ship, which was one of the, the first things that uh, I learned how to do, which is very cool. The N64 version was was very good as well. The uh, multiplayer dogfighting in it was, was a lot of fun. You know, actually very comparable in terms of the, the era that it came out and the way it did things like branching kind of space plot. Very similar to Wing Commander. Very different aesthetic behind the two games. But actually in terms of an experience of kind of going into a space combat game that is aping a kind of space film opera, if you like, a very similar outlook. Okay, so apart from the fact he was a Star Fox Star Wing fan, what else did we find out from his interview, guys? I'm quite envious of how almost kind of high level his position is, because you sort of think sometimes about game developers in sort of, you know, the way modern game development is done, and you kind of think about someone who's been given a very specific task to get working, and they just have to write this code. And the stuff that he talks about, he talks a lot about kind of interacting with the design decision forum. And, and it seems to me that actually he's got quite a lot of high-level gameplay decisions kind of on his plate. I mean, the things that he talks about is things like the flight model 
And people still say, well, you know, what's a flight model? But actually, if you think about the difference between other space games you may have played, just the way the craft handles, the way it banks left and right, the way when an enemy kind of turns in front of you and you turn to chase them, the kind of responsiveness of that and the, the immediacy of the gameplay is all down to the person who produces the flight model. So he's got, he's got some enormous responsibility on his plate, really. And I think it's kind of under, <laughs> undersold a little bit in his interview. But actually, there's an awful lot of stuff that I think if, if he's the guy in charge of that, uh, he's got a kind of awesome, awesome opportunity and an awesome responsibility. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think as well, you can tell from the interview that the level in which the DDF is having influence on the ways in which the game is being worked on. I quite like the feedback we're getting from these interviews about their approach to the DDF, because those of us that have been on the DDF know that whenever anything's put up by Frontier to comment on, it's quite extensive, the amount of comments that are coming back from different people who are passionate about the game. And as far as I'm concerned... I've probably got my points, I've probably got things I can say or things I can suggest. But at the end of the day, I want somebody who technically knows what they're doing to look at what I'm saying and kind of go, yes, okay, I hear you, or no, okay, but I've heard you and I understand where you're coming from. That's fine to me, and I, I think that's a good approach to, to bring to the way in which they're, they're dealing with it. To be fair, it's, it's one of the things that are, is really actually making Elite Dangerous such a unique concept because I don't think, I mean, we've mentioned it, but I don't think any other game has had this level of you know, community interaction and community influence on a way a game is being developed at, you know, at the ground level. You can see that a lot of the stuff that's being fed from the DDF goes back in and you can see it in the revised proposals that the developers are putting through that they've listened to the DDF comments and points and it's really sort of making a massive impact in the way that they're developing the game. But it probably links in quite nicely. Uh, with our first DDF topic. I say DDF topic, it's actually it's the Mike Evans appreciation topic. And that one being about missions, where Frontier Development have actually gone onto a slightly different path with this one. And rather than sort of laying out their, their proposal ideas, they've actually gone to the community and said, look, what sort of missions would you guys like to see? Sort of blue sky thinking, you know, give us some ideas of what sort of structure and what sort of pathway you think the mission should take. And we'll take it from there. Guys, what did you think of this? It got me thinking about the different kinds of things that people kind of want from the game. And I think for me, one of the things that's come out of that thread that's really interesting is the hunger that some people have for missions which are individual experiences, but when you sort of look at them over time, they actually form a larger story arc. I think some of the comments in that thread have indicated that there is a hunger for a series of missions which give you an insight into a wider story going on that you're either part of or that you're witnessing going on in the background? Well, the one thing that I noticed was that uh, a lot of the mission examples, uh, and it may have been how I read their request, is they were looking for you know, some kind of conceptual mission that people could go on. But people were very interested, instead of, instead of the conceptual, they wanted to provide a narrative. They wanted to see some kind of storyline. Some person has been kidnapped and... You know, they've been taken to this other faction's place and you've got to go and rescue them. They were very heavy on the detail. I thought of it as more of a kind of a conceptual task. So I was thinking of, you know, I was looking at other things like MMOs and other games that featured like multiplayer or quest-based systems. And I was thinking, and the one I came up with was a, like, um, a survival mode. Like a zombie survival mode, but obviously instead of zombies, it's going to be ships attacking you in waves. I, I thought it was interesting that the community 
really wanted to concentrate on the story more than <clears throat> actually kind of thinking outside of the box and maybe bringing in stuff from other games. Well, it's one of the things that is an easy sort of handle, I guess, for those of us that, that don't really have as much experience of, of design or, or programming, immediately creating narrative and narrative around the idea that the player is central and the player is is important. I mean, I looked at, I looked at it and thought, well, actually, within most of the, the space sim games I've played, if you're looking at mission types, there's a set of conventional ones that you can kind of go to and go, okay, an escort mission, an assassination mission, uh, a smuggling mission, etc., etc. To then find ones that are different from that model is actually is quite hard. I guess when every individual is, is kind of looking at it, they're trying to find something unique, and a, an easy way to go is to turn to narrative because you know, it creates something that's you know, unique in terms of a story. What you'll notice is in a lot of MMOs, um, you'll realise that the same mission has been used, um, but the narrative has changed. All that's changed is you need to collect you know, 10 of X, and X changes rather than what the mission is. So that's why I kind of, I just wanted to think a bit outside of the box and look to other games and what they had and see if they could actually fit with the game rather than just changing the story behind the mission. No, yeah, you make a good point. I mean, again, my experience in all of this is EVE Online where you've got various different mission uh, narratives and quite a lot of them actually depending on the various different factions for EVE Online. EVE Online has a lot of different factions. But the type of mission you get is still very similar. It's still either an escort mission or a go here, do that, drop off mission, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a couple of points here that I want to touch on. The first one is maybe there is scope for doing different missions. Like, for example, if you've got a scanner on your ship, then maybe there is a type of mission where you can do a scavenger hunt. Scavenging is a big thing in Elite Dangerous. Yeah, maybe you can get coordinates for a ship that you know is either derelict or is broken down, and you've got to go there and try and take a cargo and bring that back. We haven't seen that much in games. And secondly, uh, something that we harped on about quite a lot at LaveCon and, and in previous things is, you know, why not? You've got this wealth of experience and wealth of enthusiasm from the writers. Why not set up your missions so that later on down the line, you can actually get the likes of you know Alan Stroud, Dave Hughes to come in and write small sections of uh, mission chains that people can discover as they go through. And you just keep on adding this narrative to the game. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it depends on whether writers want to be involved to that level. I mean, I can speak for myself and say I'd love to, but, uh, you know, you'd have to work with different people. But at the same time, they're not, you know, they don't have an exclusive sort of pull on this. I think there's probably plenty of people who could write really good mission chains in this regard. I think as well it would be nice to see some conceptually unique ideas in this. I was thinking, I mean, John's idea about the, the sort of effectively a survival run, I think is a really nice, different idea. I was thinking with the fact that we're looking at, at Retrolave when we're looking at different games, you find occasionally there are one or two missions that, that become like the raison d'etre of that particular type of game. For X-Wing, for example, a lot of the photography missions were damn dangerous. So they gave you incredibly fast ships and told you to really get through the enemy fleet really, really fast to try and get the pictures that you needed. So, yeah, so, you know, I mean, something like that would be really cool. And coming up with something that is the, the raison d'etre of elite, I think, would be very, very funky. And one of the things that people have said to me, and certainly some of the feedback I got from my music, is this idea of being alone in space and, mm. you know, and solitary and, and out in the, the deep darkness in, in, in far distance 
having missions that put you in that situation, perhaps absorbing data on a, a particular comet. So you have to, you know, to sort of follow it or match and track its path to get astronomical data that you can then send back to a, a particular space station or, or a meteorite or something else. You know, those kind of ideas, they, they become very different. Mm. I'd, I'd like to see some missions that kind of reflect the kind of some of the natural wonders in the game. I was thinking about, obviously we'll come on to the newsletter, but there's stuff in there about kind of passenger transport ships. Um, and I'd like to see missions where you see kind of a, um, like maybe you have to take a tour, like you've got a group of six or seven tourists in the back of your ship, and they want to see, like you say, they want to see a comet, or they want to see a moon rise over, you know, like a, an earth rise from the moon or something like that. Or, do you know what I mean? These sorts of things, like a nebula, I want to fly through a nebula. Yeah, and you know, finally on this topic, I think you know, the mission that we all want to see is we all want to see if you do anything wrong and you can't pay your fines, that you get bundled into an orange sidewinder and you get <laughs> sent around the uh, the solar system to uh, pick up rubbish or debris or something just to sort of serve your penalty. That That's the mission everybody in Elite really wants to see. Anyway, to be fair, before we carry on, I just wanted to say if nothing that we've ever talked on this podcast makes it in, okay... <laughs> If there is no orange sidewinder anywhere in the galaxy, then it would be just, a crime. Well, it, it'll, it'll go down with the generation ships and the, and the space traders, <laughs> won't it? The orange sidewinder—the thing that nine-year-olds yeah. sit around the galaxy looking for—the orange sidewinder. You know what will happen at the end of Michael Brooks' book? It will be—you know—he'll talk about the orange sidewinder that's out there somewhere. And people will devote their lives. And, for, and all the you know, paint jobs and custom decals and everything else will not let you use a shade of orange on your sidewinder. <laughs> It's always greyed out. <laughs> okay, so we'll leave that there and go on to the next topic in the DDF, that of smuggling. Now, having read through this, I thought this was really, really exciting. Uh, John, start us off. What was your impressions of it? First of all, I wanted to say that, yes, it is very exciting, and I'm glad it was, because I think it was during the original Kickstarter, before I even joined the, f- the forum, that I was out there talking about this idea of smugglers and you know pirates and fences and there's, there's this whole side to the game that there could be, if, especially in a multiplayer environment um, and especially, especially where you've got this more complex kind of trading um, system within the game. So to see such a, like a, a fully-fledged smuggling system I thought was amazing and it's something that I'm really looking forward to playing. Well, this is just coming straight from the, uh, the section of the DDF, but smugglers' ships differ from trader ships as they are often built for speed and toughness, allowing them to outrun pursuers and survive in hostile environments. Smuggler ships are also often less conspicuous than trader and other ships in the hope that their ship will be overlooked in any encounter with a system's authority. Now, I put next to that, you know, which ships, because they haven't actually told us directly which ships are going to be less conspicuous and which ships are going to be your, your smuggling ships. Are we thinking these are going to be the small sort of sidewinder ships or do we think they're going to be your old battered Cobra Mark threes? What's everybody's impression? Well, first of all, I think there's a parallel between this and modern smuggling with ships in that a very small ship is smaller to detect. If you're um, part of the port authorities, if you saw a large ship come in, you're going to want to target that straight away for two reasons. One, because that would be a profitable smuggler's ship, because it's got a, it can take a lot of cargo. And two, there's going to be a lot of places where you can hide contraband on that ship. And it's just a, it's just a, a fact of reality that smaller ships are easier to get by the authorities with because they can land in places where maybe the big ships can't. One of the ideas that it lends itself to is having somebody lurking on the edge of a system in a large ship 
with a large amount of cargo or or not with any cargo to start with, but with lots of smaller ships bringing that cargo to them and effectively then taking that cargo off and going and trading with the relevant space station. So essentially the larger ship operates as almost like the, the traveling go-between with all of the kit and the smaller ships can then do all the little small racketeering to try and get past customs, which I think is awesome. I think it's a really clever idea. The second thing I think that we might end up seeing is, you know when you, you travel on the motorway and you see those lorries pulled over by the side of the road with the back ends down and they're completely empty on the inside? You've no idea why they're completely empty. Are we going to see ships like that just abandoned with the you know the, the freighter door empty and, well, they got stopped so they had to dump the cargo before they uh, an escape pod out because otherwise they were going to, uh, going to get arrested? Sorry, I thought the reason why they left their doors open was because the driver was asleep and they wanted to open the doors so thieves knew that there was nothing worth breaking in for. Ah, you see, you obviously know more about this than me. <laughs> Sorry, I spent a lot of time in motorway uh, yeah, laybys. <laughs> oh, how did I know there was going to be a dogging gag in there somewhere? I thought it, I thought it was something to do with people trafficking, but no. <laughs> I think what I'd like to see, I'd like to see smuggling as kind of an activity that you can get away with as part of doing another job. So, for example, and I'm kind of mentioning again, so it's in the newsletter. So, for example, you've got these passenger transport ships. There's obviously a thing in the real world with smuggling of, of kind of coaches full of people. And sometimes smugglers put things in the seats of coaches. And it'd be interesting to say, well, I'm just doing a passenger run. Do you know what I mean? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a glorified taxi service for these sort of holiday makers. But actually what you're doing at the same time as that job is running a small amount of, of illegal goods from one point to another. And maybe that would be a way of kind of avoiding sort of detection, if you like. And I don't know how easy that would be to implement. I thought, but I'm quite pleased, though. I mean, like John says, I'm quite pleased that the smuggling side of things is so detailed because there's always been a feeling for me with, with Frontier that the only difference between a smuggler and a trader was the goods that you bought. And there was obviously a kind of when you got to your place where you wanted to sell the illegal stuff, effectively it was a 50-50 chance of whether you'd get caught. There were two black market links. One of them was a copper and one of them was a real black market. Yeah, Whereas true. this looks like it's going to be much more in-depth of how you actually go through the process of smuggling goods in this world. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, mate. And we'll, we'll come on to how you actually get in touch with the various sort of black market contacts. But what you've just said there is is a cracking idea for the game. And it reminds me of, a, of an old Amiga game that some people might be aware of called Ports of Call, which was a ship trading game where you basically where you were the manager of a, a shipping empire. And uh, you had various mini games and stuff like going through icebergs. But the, the main crux of the game was, uh, you know, getting all of your cargo in and taking it to you know, faraway places for more money or shorter places for you know, quicker turnaround, et cetera, et cetera. But if you were taking your, um, your cargo to a slightly dodgy port, after you've traded up your legitimate tar- uh, cargo and got that on board, though sometimes that it was you know, a little random, it would come up and there'd be a little pop-up dialogue message that said, Psst. How would you like to be involved in a confidential um, deal? And they didn't offer you something like half a million pounds to transport uh, you know, arms along with, your re- you know, with the rest of your cargo to these ports. And you would always you know, say, if you said yes, your reputation would go down a few points, but you'd make a lot of money. Uh, and you'd always run the risk when you docked at that port. You know, you're just waiting to see whether or not the big dialogue message comes up and say you have been found out and... You know, you get a big fine for taking in contraband and stuff. So now I like that idea. And also what you mentioned about passenger ships. Now, 
we'll come on to this a bit more in the newsletter, but you know, how cool would it be to run that risk? So you're supposed to just be taking passengers around and you, you've also put in a little box of illegal you know, diamonds or narcotics and stuff on your passenger liner and, and run the risk of trading that as well. I think it's a great idea, mate. Alan? First episode of Firefly, really, isn't it? Uh, it's been a while since I've watched Firefly. Yeah. John, is it the first episode of Firefly? What, about smuggling? Yeah, yeah, smuggling of course it is. And, smuggling and passengers. The yeah. serious point I was going to make is that actually what you're describing there, Foz, is a link up between smuggling and missions, isn't it? Because actually what you could do there is turn that almost into a mission element, even to the point that would you like to make some profit doing this or would you like to escort somebody who is making some profit doing this? I like the way they factored in that distance is going to increase yeah. the, the risk and obviously the reward. Distance obviously can mean a higher profit, but then you're introducing a higher chance of you getting scanned because remember, there are going to be these spot scans outside of space stations as well, um, especially in the better police systems. So yeah, it was, it was good. Well, I mean, that's, that's quite interesting because you know, part of the proposal and stuff came into uh, you know how would you progress within your smuggler career and as you say you know one of the ways is to take high value items further distances and then you know that would also build up your reputation the thing that i really liked about it was the fact that they were talking about you haven't got a massive ship so with smuggling it's not about quantity in the same way that you know maybe a pirate ship is or a trading ship is you're not trying to get masses and masses amounts of cargo it's all about taking the high risk small amounts of cargo to the places the other thing that I really liked about the, the smugglers was also how you get in touch with your contacts. I mean, Jarvis, you mentioned about how it was 50-50 in Frontier, about whether or not you, you chose the right contact. Whereas in this, you know, getting in touch with smugglers can happen in various different ways. So there's actually going to be information that you can trade with, um, you know, with fellow players or with NPCs. But there's also going to be um, you know, bulletin board posts, such as personal ads and notifications that can have a, a contact detail contact details hidden in them so reading from the thing it says uh, these will be suggestive towards a black market trader example looking for a partner must be well stocked etc and that just made me laugh out loud in the bar downstairs the idea that you know, you, you know smugglers would actually hide it in the you know, in the wanted ads and and that they would speak in an amish accent <laughs> <laughs> hello neighbor looking for a partner looking for a partner <laughs> But certainly it gives you another commoditized thing that you can sell as a player. If you're a smuggler and you've got some regular contacts you use, that information would be really valuable. And you should be able to sell to other people the name of a reliable contact for fencing. I like as well the idea of the being... I, I'm quite into codes. I'm quite into signals and, and signifiers and bits and pieces. And I quite like the idea of the fact that there could be a way in which people talk seriously, not not necessarily with the Amish, but a way in which people talk that signifies something. And if you know what you're doing, there's a patois to talking to a smuggler or to talking to a an illegal trader of some way, which I think would be would be very clever. If it started off and originated by NPCs, if you get the lingo, then the players will pick it up, which I think would be really funky. And as an extension to that, I can imagine, you know, frontier developments could bring out like a whole new peripheral that you could plug into your PC and it would like be a hand, okay? And then you could like initiate secret handshakes with the hand. <laughs> I hate you. I hate yeah. you. Just ruined my idea. <laughs> my I'm, idea was cool. And then you I'm, I'm pissed off with how long 
I followed that thread for before I realised. <laughs> you now, you've now turned it into secret signal from Team America, haven't you? You know, cheers, man. But how awesome would that be? It'd be like a hand that like loses yeah, yeah, senses yeah. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it's, it's awesome, John. Fine, yeah, yeah. it's an orange hand. Think, yeah, whatever. I don't think you want to be selling to players a uh, a muscled hand that plays. <laughs> prone to be hacked you know hacked for other purposes they're going to be repurposed straight away by the elite community i never so. said they would be a rumble pack in it i just said <laughs> or, if the, or if the fingers were animated yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh okay getting back on topic um some of the some of the ships Again, trying to get in touch with uh, smugglers. Some of the ships will be marked with recognisable smugglers' marks, and uh, they could be communicated with and interrogated for details. And I love the idea that some of the ships may require payment or proof of a player's intent based on reputation. How cool it would be to have this sort of dynamic in the game where you know that it's a smuggler's ship and you want to get into smuggling, but you haven't really got the world's best reputation. So you you go up to them, you make the contact, and they say, yeah, it's going to be like you know, 2,000 of your 3,000 credits before I even talk to you. Yeah, And on the one hand, you, you know, you're thinking, well, okay, I could hand over this 2,000 credits and you might give me the information I really want to start my smuggling career. Or if my reputation is too low, he can take my 2,000 credits and bugger off with them and just completely do a runner, at which point you can either try and chase him down or, or he's just gone into you know, the back of beyond. But I love the idea. I mean, one of the things that happened a lot in EVE Online is that real players would scam newbie players and say, you know, give me this money and I'll get you involved in this guild. And it was a sort of a 50-50 as to whether or not they would actually take the money and, and do what they said or just literally just take the money. I think that's quite a nice way of uh, of doing it in uh, Elite Dangerous as well. Again, you could run that into missions. Okay, you guys want to actually do a robbery? Okay, have you ever stolen anything in your life? Okay, go off and steal me something. There's also the fact that these contact details, as you said, can be bought and sold to other players. And players can sell details to authorities as well. So you can you know, shop them into the police, increasing the chance of one of your smuggler contacts being discovered. Now, I love the idea of doing that. But then also having that having a ramification later on so that the people who you shop to the authorities come back and put a you know, revenge mission on your head so that you've actually got a bounty from the, the smugglers and they're trying to chase you down. You know, it's all sort of this meta game which seems to be surrounding smuggling that they've really sort of taken into consideration when they've been doing this proposal, which I think is awesome. Even things down to the fact that there's a separate market screen from the, uh, from the main economy for the smugglers. How cool would it be if that was visually different? You know, it was a little bit more seedy, a little bit more run down than the main bulleting board stock market. Yeah, and the final bit on this subject is talking about how you actually get picked up. Now, John mentioned about being scanned, but the, the level of detail that Frontier Developments have gone into this is even the, how it is that you get scanned and the different chances. So, for example, a, a patrol ship, you know, just a, a normal patrol ship has a 20% chance of detecting illegal cargo as it's flying around. Whereas a police border patrol special unit has an 80% chance. And the, you know, the last point on this one is the distance you fly from authority ships can help players avoid being searched. And this just made me think back to uh, Han Solo's remark in Star Wars to, uh, to Chewbacca about uh, fly casually. I don't know. You know. The idea that in Elite Dangerous you've got to try and fly casually if you're a smuggler. So far, I think the smuggler's uh, topic has been the most... Uh, yeah, the most fascinating one. I had no interest in being a smuggler before this, but uh, now I think that's my route one, uh, as soon as Elite Dangerous goes live. Awesome, awesome. So on a live radio podcast, you're just going to tell everybody you're going to be a smuggler? Yeah, God, yes. <laughs> 
what would it take your name into account when you know thinking about whether to scan you? Like if your surname was like you know Carlos or Fernandez or something, <laughs> oh. would it would it would it profile you or something? That'd be you know, and that why not straight on the cutting room floor. <laughs> if, I, if I can't get away with the racist jokes, I'll be fucked if you can. Hey, I was actually pointing out something which is a social injustice about racial profiling. I think I think to be fair, you could you could create something in game that constructed a a prejudicial profile, which I think would actually would be quite interesting. Um yeah. if you knew if yeah, for example, if when you log into the game in the first place, you have to uh to give an indication of where your home planet is or which faction you belong to, or which corporation you work for. And then, basically, in certain systems, the police force would go after people who were associated with particular planets, factions, or corporations. That would be cool. I mean, you don't even need to you know, ask people to volunteer information. If you think about it, if you're flying around an imperial ship... And you're in a federation system. Absolutely, they're going to stop you, assuming that you're you've got some slaves on board. And that, hey, there's loads of that, yeah. and it could all, you know, it could just tip the balance in certain ways that um, it makes it that more interesting where you fly to in your ship. I think profiling with stop and search, I think is is you know if it's modelled within the game based on game assets in some way, whether it's ship or whether it's information that's that's given in, I think that's awesome. Yeah, sorry, Chris. I wasn't. I wasn't suggesting that when uh, you create your commander name, it asks you what race you are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on to the next topic, which is bounty hunting, which we have seen before, but this is the revised edition of bounty hunting. Now, without going into too much detail on this one, uh, some of the things that uh, I picked out of this, there's no mention. Uh, unlike there is in, in smuggling, where that you've obviously got smuggling cartels and you know, criminal organizations, there's no mention at all about a bounty hunting guild, uh, which I was just wondering, does that suggest to you guys that bounty hunting is always going to be a, you know, a solo career? Well, I, I don't. A lot of people, when they're talking about bounty hunters, and I think you kind of just done it in your you know, little bit of an intro before, was that they were kind of some form of justice. But I, I don't. I think of them more as um, you know, just as bad as the pirates. They're just out to earn money, but they're doing it by killing people, um, and usually they don't know why they're doing it. It's just because some person has pissed off some person enough that there's enough money on their head. So I would. I really hope that um, you know, just as much as Michael Brooks has come out and uh, defended slavery. Maybe he'll come out and tell us how bounty hunters aren't that great, because uh, I'm hoping they're, they're just as nasty as the pirates. Because really you're just an assassin with a license. But you're both making an assumption there. Bounty hunters do kill their targets, because we have had some information on the fact that ships can be damaged. I'm wondering if there are ways in which you can immobilise a ship so it can be picked up by the police. You can, um, you know, put somebody effectively put somebody into their escape capsule, so it can be picked up by the police or something like that. You know, there are a couple of other things here. I think that you know that could happen with bounty hunting, and it may not be that the the end goal of a bounty hunter is just to completely destroy whoever it is that the the money is on. Well, no, you got a good point there. I mean, sorry, I was just basically, you know, I was basing it on previous games where you were rewarded for, for, for you know, for killing people. And obviously in this, yes, um, people get away in their escape pods now. Again, you know, what you've just said is, you know, I guess another assumption in so much that, 
you know, bounty hunters will have a kind of more restorative justice to them, that they will be working with law enforcement to bring people to justice rather than taking them out. But it'll be interesting to find out. I mean, certainly with some of these passenger um, ships that they've just announced, there's a possibility there. I mean, obviously, if you go one way, you'd want to fit your, your passenger ship up so that you have the most your best luxury and the best tours of the galaxy, blah, blah, blah. Or you can go the other way, make it a prison ship, mm. pack them in into, into cells. And effectively what your, your, your commodity and your trade is in, in prisoners. Now that, you know, we can, we can kind of speculate a bit about how players are affected by that. And I, I don't think players would end up in, you know, in that sort of situation, but certainly with NPCs, there's no reason why you couldn't, fly against an NPC and then deliver him to a prison ship who would then transport him to, you know, to somewhere else. That's an interesting idea. Just moving on to the aspects of being a skilled bounty hunter, one of the things that jumped out at me uh, with this was the planning kills in advance to take advantage of weak spots in a target. So using stealth to scan and weigh up a target before attacking to give them the advantage. Now, I'm not sure if we've talked about this before, but you know, within Elite Dangerous, how stealthy is stealthy going to be? I mean, is it going to be possible within the game to you know to really sort of sneak up behind another player or an NPC and literally sort of you know crawl up behind them, scan them down, and just sort of you know stay in their blind spot, as it were? I mean, all we know so far about stealth is it's all about managing your you know your heat trail and your heat dissipation. You know, what do people think about yeah you know, this whole idea of stealth and you know almost crawling up behind someone, scanning them down, and then taking them out before they know you're there? Well, I don't think it's unique to bounty hunters. I mean, pirates would obviously want to use such a mechanic as well. But yeah, I mean, it, it's more information. I mean, technically, the, the way they described it, it was all about, you know, the, the radar was going to be related to heat signatures rather than mass, which was what I thought previous uh, systems were used to. Then, sure, I mean, technically anyone could creep up on anyone as long as they did it in a cold way. You know, they weren't uh, manoeuvring too much or firing any weapons or had some sort of, like, systems that were generating a lot of heat. So you could literally, you know, you could be blind. You know, you could be blind to the person that's, you know, flying up slowly behind you. Well, I'm thinking that, for instance, say a trader enters a system, all they're going to want to do is get to their destination ASAP, which is going to be some station somewhere, you know. So they're going to set the time, they're going to hit their thrusters, and they're going to try and get there in optimal time. So it'll be maximum acceleration and then maximum deceleration, whatever is obviously, you know, optimal in terms of efficiency. I'm assuming that that would be pretty visible. Yeah. Um, But I'm thinking that people that fly with a little less thrust or people that maybe have a little add-on can hide their thrust so that um, that they can move around the system without necessarily being detected. Yeah, see, the problem as I see the stealth is that if you've got a ship that, where, as you say, they're just getting somewhere, if you're catching them up, you have to be outputting more energy than they are to catch them up. I mean, that's just kind of physics, physics 101, if you like. Well, not necessarily, because if you're in a smaller ship, you require less power output. Yeah, this is true, this is true. But it's a bit like, I mean, if you think about stealth in third-person action games, the reason you can creep up behind people is because they're kind of guards on like a, a patrol and every now and again they stop. It's, it's very hard to sneak up on a running target. I think your two options, I think, really have to be either you have some way of intercepting them so that you're sitting and waiting for them and you can kind of drop in front of them or whether or not there's a kind of a blind spot behind every craft where your engines are. The idea being you're outputting so much 
energy yourself that effectively you can't read what's immediately on your six. And then the skill of the pilot is, can you catch up to someone flying only within their blind spot? And that makes it a player. Well, that makes it gameplay. And that makes it player skill, um, which I think is always worth (laughs) worth having in there occasionally. (laughs) Okay, well, the final piece on this that I wanted to uh, just sort of reflect on uh, was the fact that uh, we've obviously got this proposal uh, mainly focusing on, you know, NPC missions and stuff. And, you know, this is what they've talked about is great for NPCs, but what happens if your, you know, your target is actually a player controlled ship? You know, what happens within the game if they, you know, disconnect or log off? Uh, or what happens if they dock at a station? I mean, are you expected to just wait outside? Or it'd be interested to get some sort of feedback from Frontier as to how they're going to manage that. Because, you know, you could, trace a tar- you could chase a target you know, right across the galaxy. And just as you catch up with them, you know, they could log off and go and have tea which kind of makes it a sort of um, you know, a pointless exercise. I know it's not going to happen with NPCs, but it's certainly a possibility if you're in the all-player groups um, and you've got uh, you know, a normal human player as your bounty. I think the, the thing is that if there's going to be bounty-related missions, they're probably going to... or pirate missions. Yeah, um, whichever way you look at it, it's going to have to be NPC-based. I think with bounties, for instance, that um, if you just come across a player in your system and he just so happens to be there and you scan him and he's got a bounty on him, obviously that would be the one situation where a player versus player bounty w- will occur. But I don't think there is... I mean, as you just said, is it going to be? it can't be workable for you to go across the entire galaxy only for the person to log off. That is a major problem for them. Okay, well, that's going to do it for bounty hunting. What we're going to go on to now is the topic that is near to quite a few people's hearts, certainly in the Kickstarter. It's the one that I envisage I would spend most of my time on, and that's the one of exploration. Now, Alan, I believe you've been reading around on this. Tell us about it. Yeah, they've revised the proposal slightly, um, and you know they've given a, a fairly good definition to, to, to start off. So it says, In Elite Dangerous, explorers are players who travel out to undiscovered areas of the galaxy, hoping to find previously undiscovered systems and locations. Explorers scan and record data wherever they go and can sell that data to various interested authorities. Explorers can also sell data they have discovered to other players, allowing them to sell the coordinates of valuable finds to the highest bidder, or keep their discoveries to exploit for themselves. So what we've got here, if you cast your mind back to our very, very early Lave Radio episodes... We were asking about the the idea of sharing map data and nav data and selling this as a commodity. That's basically what they've written in, which is fantastic. It's great to see. Now, they've talked about the points of interest. There are some listed points of interest that are available. Star systems themselves, dark systems, uh, stars, planets, asteroids, comets, moons, structures, other phenomena, and then secret locations, resources, events and missions, things that are going on beauty spots, message beacons, etc., etc. And then they talk about some of the ways in which the, um, the explorer can, can relay that information. They've talked about scanning equipment, so I'm assuming that's going to be a purchasable product, and using probes as well to record um, information and detect and establish new hyperspace routes. So there's all sorts in here in terms of being an explorer, giving all sorts of uh, opportunity to record data and then transmit it back for a profit. But there's also some things about effectively taking photographs of particular regions, which I think is really interesting because those had obviously then become something of a package to sell back to either players or to to NPCs to, to indicate what 
kind of place that they've been going to. So, yeah, all a, a very detailed and interesting idea. And it also it gives a very clear indication that the Explorer option and the Explorer idea is a method by which people can earn money and can create a career. I think exploring is something that's really going to put the multiplayer slash single player element of the game to the test. Because if if we do start off with this system where the core is quite well known and then the frontier is quite nearby, the more players that come into the game and if this information is shared across this shared server or whatever, you know, even just for the sake of argument, if someone comes into the game six months after it's been released and they want to be an explorer, they're going to be a bit like someone wanting to be an explorer now. You think, I want to go and explore somewhere no one's ever seen. Oh, the whole world's been mapped by satellite. You know, what is there to find kind of thing. And I think it'll be a real test. And, and I'd hate it to be one of those things with, with being an explorer where there's a danger that the single player is more fun than the multiplayer. Because in the single player, there is more unknown because nobody else has unlocked it. Okay, and the final topic of the DDF this week is that of naming ships. It's something we've heard the community crying out for from the early days of the Kickstarter comments page that you know people wanted the you know, the ability to name their ship because you know, it's something that they thought would give them an extra connection to it. So, basically, a ship can be given a name by a commander. A ship name can be registered at a reputable space dock. There's no fee to register the name, and names are not unique. Although, obviously, as in Frontier, uh, as in the game Frontier, you'll always have your unique registration. Basically, without going into too much depth about the ship naming, the you know the main thing about having a name for your ship is that will slightly increase the amount of reputation that you gain uh, for the length of time that that ship has a name. So, in other words, as long as you've named your ship, the length of time that you continue to fly that ship and that uh, and do deeds in that ship, you know, the fact that it's a name ship will also increase your reputation by a small multiplier. What do people think about this? Have people got their their ship names already uh, you know put to one side? Well, I'm going to be. I'm going to start because, believe it or not, I don't have a ship name because I'm guessing most people do. The one thing I'm going to preempt Mr. Jarvis because he actually made this point, um, so I'll give him credit. Which was this? They they say in this that if there's a ship um, and it has some kind of a bonus attached to it, uh, but that it then gets sold to someone else, that bonus then disappears. Which which I think is wrong. You know, if there is a ship out there which is feared. You know, like there's a a, fa- a pirate you know, captain flies a certain ship for an extended period of time. That ship becomes feared. I think in some kind of a way that reputation does need to be passed on to the next captain. Um, and that's before I even start mentioning names like, you know, Black Bess or, you know, the Nebuchadnezzar or something like that. Sorry I stole your thunder there, Chris, but no, it was no, so good. No, it was, a, it was a point that was made on the thread. I mean, the thing that was confusing is there's, there's doubt over whether or not there'll be player-to-player ship sales which kind of makes the passing on of reputation point a little bit moot because if it if it just goes back into the game system then then that ship will never be seen again but yeah i think you know realistically if if you talk about you know a spacecraft like the enterprise okay you might be slightly less impressed if it's chekhov flying it than kirk but it's still the enterprise and it's going to make you feel a certain thing when you see it and in this game i can imagine you know there might be ships out there that that develop a kind of uh, a fame all of their own, regardless of who's flying them. Well, I'm sorry, if I come across the Enterprise in, in game, um, I don't even care if I'm just an honest trader, I will shoot them. <laughs> oh, no, no, I'm just, giving, I'm just giving an example of it, you know, in sci-fi, a ship that kind of is its own icon, if you like, regardless of who's flying it. I think as well, um, speaking as a fiction writer, 
there will be ships in many of the novels that will be named and mentioned. And of course, it would be very nice if those ships that were named and mentioned were actual commodities in the game, wouldn't it? But it depends on how they can track it and whether they can manage that. But there's also yeah. a difficult area of when, you know, looking back at all the other elite games, there is an element of upgrading your ship and upgrading your experience. And, you know, if so if you name a ship, is that that ship? You know, like, so if I'm, if I'm flying a, a Sidewinder and I call it a particular thing, and then because I've amassed a bit of money, I sell the Sidewinder and buy myself a Viper, you know, what do I do? Have I now lost that, sh- you know, do I... And, and it's purely for your own sense of immersion. But it's almost a bit immersion-breaking if you call every ship you ever buy the same name, regardless of what it is. But at the same time, the ships kind of come and go as commodities a little bit in the world of Elite. The thing is, and, and I'm going to say this is somebody who... <laughs> I was going to say someone who dabbles in water sports, but I realise there's, <laughs> um, <laughs> there's multiple meanings to that. When you buy a boat these days, it will come with a name because it was obviously named by whoever purchased it. And whether you're um, superstitious or not, um, there is this kind of idea that you stick with, unless it's truly horrendous, you will just stick with the name that came with the boat. You know, and sometimes, and, and it's all to do with, like, the people will, will rationalise their purchase. You know, they bought this ship, they would like the ship, um, they might not have liked the name initially, but they will suddenly rationalise how they, 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 can, they can live with it and then become, you know, learn to love it. The point is that um, I don't know if that kind of, you know, tradition can transfer into game. Because if you set the, the price low to rename a ship, call it a thousand credits then most people are just going to pay it because they want to rename it to exactly, and as you just said, they're going to rename it to exactly the same ship name they had before because that was the name that they really liked. And so that is not like real life. Maybe they should just set the price to rename your ship ridiculously high. You know, you've got to pay for Fozza to go out, you know, and spray paint, you know, spray away the old name and then get the stencils out and then spray on the new. And that costs, you know, a 100 grand or something like that. I, th- I think you should actually have to fly to Earth, to Swansea Starport, and go to DVLA <laughs> in person to change the name of your ship. That would be awesome. Especially if you've got a massive bounty on your head, or you're Imperial. Yeah, and you have to queue in real time. You'd still get people doing it, that's the thing though. Okay, you're all very sad. Now, just to pick up on a couple of points that you uh, you guys both made. Um from the description that came out in the DDF, uh, what they've said so far is that there's no player-driven second-hand ship trading plan for the initial release. Obviously, that might change in future releases, but certainly for the first one, um, yeah, that's not part of the plan. And secondly, it's the fact that um, you know, names are not unique. So when you guys are saying you know you name it and you know Enterprise has such a you know, profound reputation, you know it could be Enterprise 56 or Enterprise 172. Yeah, the fact that the names aren't going to be unique means that uh, there's not really that much point at the moment because you're going to have so many Nebuchadnezzars or so many Fireflies that there's no real um, connection between the name and and the reputation amongst the galaxy. What I'm saying is, even if there's no player-driven ship names in a used market, they've said that when you buy your ship, if it's second-hand, it will have a random name given to it. And I'm thinking that players will just naturally, the first reaction they'll have is that they will want to go and rename it. 
to to exactly the same name that they had for their previous ship, probably because that's the clever one that they thought of, you know, during the Kickstarter. <laughs> And you know they want to carry it on, and and but but that's not realistic because people don't do that in real life. In real life, you stick with a name that comes with the ship because it's bad luck to change it. Yeah, although I do, yeah. do want my ship to be called the Saucy Mrs. Trustpot. Well, I think you might actually have the unique on that one then. Even if you just called your ship the Hold My Kidney, I think you'd probably <laughs> have the unique uh, the unique name for that. But I'd actually, uh, I, I mean, I'd I'd like to see names from other major sci-fi properties blocked in the same way that. They were talking about blocking them when people were registering commander names. I'm with John. It's not something I want to see. I don't want to see Enterprises and Nebuchadnezzar's and all that stuff. Yeah, I want to, I'm afraid yeah. I'm going to have to just say tough on that one. Uh, because you know, as soon as it hits the, the mass market, then people are just going to... Yeah, they're definitely going to populate it with those sort of things because people have, yeah, on the whole, very little imagination when it comes to these things. And there's going to be bigger stickers and all sorts of things going in there. So, Stacey, I don't yeah. mind that, but it's, it's, it's when things are—it's when things are kind of out at that moment. I mean, it's like, like ten years you couldn't play a game online without there being at least one player called Neo. Yeah, and I'm, I'm like, unlike any random online matchup, there there must have been like half the gaming population must have been using the name Neo, and it's just tiring. It is, but as you say, there's there's no control over that. I mean, people will do that. Unfortunately, it's just human nature. Yeah, and and to be honest, I would kind of agree with you that it's probably best just allow them to do it. Like for instance, I would probably allow the name Nebuchadnezzar because it's it's more than just a film. Yeah. Obviously, that name is you know as as a rich heritage. But I guess as time goes by, the Enterprise will have heritage, and so. You know, it's not completely crazy to think someone will call their their craft the Enterprise. In fact, has there not been a ship called the Enterprise? Oh, yeah, yeah, there was there's a, there's a, yeah, the US carrier called Enterprise. I mean, it, it's less irritating to come across someone who's called their ship the Citizen Kane than it is to come across someone who's called it Serenity or something like that. The last bit that I wanted to pick up on this before we move into uh, the newsletters was the fact that um, newsfeed bulletins will reference name ships with high bonuses to reputation, highlighting accomplishments achieved by them. I quite like the idea that you know you could have a news message pop up that says you know something like on the lines of, you know, the Asbo strikes again. Asbo Sidewinder took down a Cobra Mark III hovering in the Slough system. This ship was found to be hurling abuse at random passes by and was taken down by a very orange sidewinder Asbo ship. Yeah, I, I quite like the fact that you might get those sort of um, in uh, in radio or in broadcast or in news feed uh, type of announcements. I think that would be quite a cool way of uh, keeping track of everybody and their reputation. I think Chris was making a thinly veiled threat to Kate there. <laughs> yeah. No, no threat at all. Taking out crazy cat lady in Slough, yeah. In an orange sidewinder. Yeah. All, all well, the as I say, I think obviously my the name of my ship is obviously going to be the Asbo, so <laughs> <laughs> which is at least original. <laughs> yeah. Well, you say that, but it depends on how many lay radio listeners go in with their ship and just call it the Asbo uh, when they start off in their sidewinder. <laughs> you might find there's hundreds of Asbo sidewinders out there. No, I think the Asbo army is a great idea. There you are. You've got your own guild My already. Own guild. Guild full as, of sidewinders. As bright as the sun. <laughs> <laughs> right, on that note, guys, let's put uh, let's put the DDF to bed and move on to uh, newsletters. Now, we've got two newsletters. Uh, obviously, we've been off air for a while, so we've, uh, we've got to catch up with newsletter number nine and newsletter number ten. So, okay, so this is uh, Hitchhiker's Guide, newsletter number nine. This one goes into detail about the galactic map and the user interface that the player can expect. Uh, now, John, 
what do you think of this? I mean, the galactic map to me looks like, um, I mean, this looks very pretty and very much sort of up to date. Uh, but it's a similar sort of thing as what we had in Frontier, where you could go down to either the space station level or zoom all the way out to the galactic level. The galactic map? I don't know if you've seen something we haven't, but the galaxy view they haven't shown yet. They've shown the orrery view. The galaxy view is probably going to be very like Frontier, as you said. It's like that very static you know, overhead view of the galaxy with all the stars, which will probably just give you an indication of how exactly far away you've got from Sol. Um, So I don't think that's going to change a lot. The sector view is obviously going to be very interesting. They've shown it in in terms of that you see this 10 by 10 by 10 light year cube, which kind of is very handy. It's a lot handier than you had in Frontier because it gives you a better idea of where you can jump to. Um, in Frontier, obviously, sometimes you would go and select somewhere thinking that it was in the same sector as you, but then it would tell you you didn't have enough fuel because, obviously, it was very high or very low. Um, so that is going to be useful. Um, the orrery view is a thing of beauty because that's the thing that's depicted, and it's obviously on some kind of a logarithmic scale so that everything fits onto one screen. You can just look at it. You can see everything in the system, all planets, all, all moons, and, and probably all players as well. So absolutely fantastic. And obviously along the the bottom right-hand side, you've got the star and all the planets for a quick way to just click on them and get there rather than finding them on their orbits. And then the single mass view is basically just going to be information about a planet. I think they got it bang on in terms of, you know, sticking with the original formula. They've expanded on it. They're using, you know, the new hardware, the new graphics technology to make it look sexy. Other interesting thing on this screenshot is the uh, top (laughs) left is the presence of the, the sort of corporate logo Universal Cartographics. And I'm wondering if this is the organisation that you sort of buy and sell map information through, uh, and whether or not Mr Stroud has any comment on the matter. Um, it is the first time I have heard the name of the company when you mentioned it. I hadn't noticed it, to be honest. Um, so I, I, I would assume it's either a placeholder or somebody oh. else is developing some of the corporation information, which is, you know, entirely... Entirely fine, you know, and entirely possible because, uh, you know, I only gave them a, a set of suggestions. So, uh, so yeah, so, you know, it could be something uh, something very cool. They could be the company that are handling things. Then again, you've also got uh, a couple of other companies that have profiles um, that um, that would cover this kind of area. Certainly in the, uh, you know, in previous games, uh, you have a couple of companies that would do that. I mean, what else is interesting if you're going in for the whole sort of eagle-eyed thing with this screenshot? Have you noticed that the uh, the uh, depictions of uh, Mr. Braben and Mr. Brooks uh, from the Lavecon cake just happen to have wound up on this guy's table as well? Yeah, I believe they're touring the office. Um, I Are they? Excellent. Said, yeah, I think that was said in uh, in comments on um, Josh Attack's interview that uh, the two of them are on a tour of the office at the moment. Oh, that's phenomenal. Well, I mean, looking at looking at what else is on the, his desk, I do believe that is actually a uh, official user guide uh, or one of the um, strategy guides for uh, Frontier that he's got as the booklet. If I can just make out the uh, the front of it, um, I can say this because I saw one in the flesh at uh, Lavecon as well. And then some of the uh, some of the ships he's got there. Now, obviously, there's one for Battlestar Galactica, and what's the one behind? Well, there's a, what looks like a droid from something like Machinarium, maybe. It's got that yeah. kind of bulky-headed droid design. He's got a TARDIS there, and um, he's also got one of the transporter craft from uh, Space 1999, which we've previously discussed as looking a little bit like the interplanetary lifter from Frontier. 
Yeah, absolutely right. Well, there you go. So it just proves that he's obviously as much of a geek as the rest of us, which is quite nice. Okay, and the bit that I really uh, found quite interesting was the, the bit by Igor Terenchev, who's the lead programmer of Elite Dangerous and the people who was actually working secretly behind the scenes before the Kickstarter began on, uh, on trying to make the game possible. And he was uh, tasked with making the, uh, the galaxy, basically procedurally generating the, uh, the whole Milky Way. And without going into too much detail of it, I mean, I would highly recommend people go and read just the sort of the level of, um, of science that went into what he actually did to create the Elite Dangerous Universe. OK, so going on to the second newsletter, newsletter number 10, which is uh, mainly focused around the, the concept of trading in Elite. Now, trading, obviously, in the main first three games of the franchise was, was the core element. And it was interesting to see how Frontier Developments are trying to expand on this for the Elite Dangerous game. I mean, they're idea is the fact that they've got the event system which they can use at their disposal to alter effects on planets such as famine uh, such as civil war and stuff like that plus the fact that it's now going to be a completely multiplayer universe uh, they're hoping to make the trading system in elite much more dynamic and detailed than in previous iterations what do you guys think about this well I, i'm going to get it in i'm going to be a complete geek and talk about the images we've got these canisters and it looks like in the future um in 3500 these canisters have kind of taken over the ship container they seem to be more geared towards um futuristic kind of cargoes so for instance they talk about hydrogen so you have a container which contains multiple levels within it contains multiple cylinders of hydrogen but the container is also cooled and has a specific kind of heat capacity and it'll have a kind of like a a freezing facility or whatever to to keep the hydrogen cool while it's docked and things like that but also it means that these containers can have other things in it so for instance if it's going to be you know something that's not going to be perishable in space you can just cram it full Um, and i'm wondering that whether in the game um, that will have some kind of an impact on you know what you what you carry in these containers um so depending on the commodity it might be densely packed or it may require have some kind of additional requirement which means that you've got to have something else in the container so it's not so dense yeah so you mean you get more you know more of certain items in one container than you do with others so you might have uh, something with uh, say grain for example where it's absolutely rammed to the rafters and you can get much more grain in one one canister, whereas the thing with hydrogen, you might only get eight pieces of hydrogen because of all the support equipment required to keep it yeah, stable. But yeah, that's what I'm thinking, yeah. The other screenshot that's in this newsletter is also quite interesting because the, um, the, the containers themselves on top have a kind of stylized icon yeah. representing the cargo that's within them, which is quite nice. Sort of leads you to wondering again about the, the later update where you can walk around your ship, whether you'll be able to kind of get an impression from inside someone's ship of what cargo they've got just by sort of casting an eye over their cargo hold. Well, it's also the fact of, uh, you know, if you see one of these things floating around in space and you haven't got a scanner equipped, is it possible to get close enough to visually inspect what was <laughs> floating around on the, the tip and figure out what it is that you're, you're trying to pick up? It might take you longer than if you had a scanner, but it might still be feasible, you know? Okay, and the other thing that they've, uh, they've mentioned in here is the different commodities that are available at different particular sort of trading hubs. So you've got your space stations that will do, you know, legal commodities and essential ship supplies, shipyards that trade in limited commodities relating to ships, ship modules, ship supplies and specialist enhancements. And then you've got things like factories, then the black market, pirate bases and smuggler bases. And each of those is completely different in terms of what they will trade, what commodities they will trade, what will be available, and also what level of um, access you need to get to them. You know, some of those will only deal in 
legitimate commodities. Others will let you go in there with illegal commodities. Yeah, and, and some are slightly more grey. So, yeah, have a look at the newsletter just to see the uh, yeah, the breakdown of that. But it does show you, you know, what the different facilities are going to let you do. Looking at the screenshot, guys, what's your impression of the trading screens and the information that uh, you know, are currently sort of being presented on them? Now, I know this is very early stages in development, but you know, from my point of view, one of the things I was a little bit concerned about is that does seem that they, all the screens look very, very busy. I'm just wondering if that's busy in a good way in the fact that you need all this information or busy in a way that's actually going to detract you from the information you need. Well, as far as screen density, I thought, I thought they were okay. I didn't think they were too over the top. And I think they've done quite well to draw attention to the important parts. For instance, on on the screenshot with the hydrogen, you know, you've got the big fat buy and sell parts with a confirm. You know, the parts you're going to interact with are kind of large. So you can see them. Where, you know, where there's like graphs and things like that, okay, there's a higher resolution there, but that's where you need it. So I think they've been quite clever in how they've put the screens together. What I was interested in when they were discussing the screens was about, um, you know, information and its availability. And it seems to me that they want to kind of kind of go hand in hand with this idea of exploration, that um, information is a commodity within itself. And I, as somebody who's been quite pro sharing information, you know, online, which not everyone agrees with, I can I can completely understand that. They seem to be taking this this idea that they want to commoditize information within the game. They don't want it to be the case that um, you can always access up to date information on commodities of of anywhere, any you know, any point in space. You know, you will be limited to whatever the price was last time you saw it, for instance. And so that creates um, just just as it creates um, an information commodity with new places and new resources. For instance, if if you're someone who's visited a really distant frontier station and you know the the commodity prices there, that information itself could be valuable. If you came straight back into the core systems, you could say, I've got the recent prices, and you could sell that. And I think that in in itself would be a fantastic game mechanic. It um, it ties in really with um, some of the discussions that have been had about communication in itself and how communication is available via hyperspace and how you know how much detailed information can be broadcast and and received uh, via hyperspace or between different star systems. So you know the the issue really is that uh, in that regard is that trying to get that kind of information to lots of different systems is is quite difficult and i think by making that a commodity in itself i think that's you know it's a good solution but what's going to stop two players in in multiplayer you know chatting with each other over skype and one of them saying i've got a list of all the commodities here where i am you read out to me your buy price and i'll tell you what your biggest margin is nothing is going to nothing. stop those players yeah. in in you know in answer to your question but it doesn't mean that in a game you shouldn't try to create systems in place so that you know so that communication is done at a lag and is done at a you know a different way particularly if you know if it's news articles for example if there's news information coming from from an event occurring in one system then perhaps another system won't react until they receive the information and that could be delayed you know the the essentially the structures that aren't controlled by the players would reinforce the um the speed of how news travels. 
But what you just said there, Chris, about this idea that there could be two players, as you said, on Skype or on TeamSpeak or something like that, they don't necessarily have an advantage because Frontier have, you know, they face the facts that they would have to have instant communication across the whole galaxy because of things like that. And they don't necessarily have an advantage. If anything, they, you know, they would be giving up an advantage by working together because the player who has the information would just be giving it up freely over TeamSpeak where he could possibly sell that information if he kept it within the game. You know, if he actually communicated it to someone and said, hey, I've got this information about the commodity prices, how much do you want to pay? That way he could make a profit. With his friend, it would be in effect exactly the same as having a friend in game and just giving him that information straight away. And of course, they'd have to rendezvous to exchange the credits or to exchange the, uh, to make the transaction. So you'd be going halfway there anyway. It effectively, you'd be rooting people from outside the game back into playing the game again, wouldn't you? Okay, well, for the next section, this was one of the areas that I really did get quite uh, quite excited about. And again, it's another example of the level of detail that Frontier Developments are going into. We've seen a little bit before about the whole organization and creation of planets. But uh, in this newsletter, it's actually giving you the, the breakdown of what it is that goes into them. I never appreciated the level of science that goes into you know, the planet editor. I'm just reading here, it says, the, the editor allows our team to set a wide range of parameters and environmental options in order to create the planetary maps based on conditions that are system on that particular system. So temperature, temperature range, chemical and atmospheric composition, age, history, plate tectonics, erosion, and tidal locking, etc. And basically, they've got various different maps for heights, liquid color mapping, liquid color cloud mapping, flow maps, so that everything can really sort of have an impact on each other. So... If you take, for example, if you add water sources to the planet's surface in areas above sea level, it detects how these systems might modify or erode the landscape. It's amazing the level of detail that has gone into this planet editor. My only concern is, guys, eventually we're hoping to be able to go down and either land on these planets or fly through these planets. I mean, you guys know more about programming than I do. Is this the sort of thing that's going to come back and bite them on the arse? where they've got all of these sort of texture maps, is it going to be as realistic when you're actually flying down on a planet with your spaceship? Well, potentially, the way that they're they're mapping things, because everything's procedural, that means that they can have, in effect, a kind of infinite density of information. I'm hoping that when you land on a planet, there's going to be an enormous amount of information, and they can do it very cheaply in terms of storage space. They have an advantage over the, the normal way of storing information, which would be like via a bitmap or a height map. And in fact, when they make, make reference to a height map in the, the newsletter, they're kind of using old-fashioned ways of representing terrain and cloud patterns and things like that. But because the information is all going to be uh, created procedurally rather than via um, you know, textures, which are going to be loaded off a, a disk and put onto a graphics card or whatever, um, it's all going to be created on the fly. There's not going to be those like, heavy requirements for storage. That's interesting. Maybe I've got this wrong then, but you know, when they're procedurally generating these planets, in the multiplayer, is your planet going to look exactly the same as my planet, or is it procedurally generated every time someone jumps into that system? I think they talked about it before. Basically, what happens is you have a seed, um, and that seed is going to be the same for everyone. So, for instance, say you and I are going to, we're going to go to the same star system, which is going to be in sector minus one, minus one. There's your seed for that sector. And then you go to planet 5 in minus 1, minus 1. And it's, that's the same planet 5 for both of us. So the seed is going to be the same. 
But everything then that is generated about that planet, all of the features are all of that one seed where it is. And I'm sure they've talked about it in this specific newsletter and quite a few other ones that are related to procedural, that yes, they will both look exactly the same for us. Um, and not just for the two of us, but if we both close down the game and open it up again, it will always look the same. I mean, that is the magic of procedural generation. It's that you can basically create this idea that there is a, an infinite universe, even though it is all actually created off of very, very simple facts. It's exploiting the fact that computers don't really have an ability to generate random numbers. Yeah, I mean, essentially it's about the fact that, you know, if you ask a computer for a random number sequence and you, you give it the, the starting seed the same every time, the sequence of random numbers you get will always be the same. Um, and really that's what they're doing with procedural generation. They're finding ways of, of just storing that starting point for the random sequence. So the random sequence is always repeatable. And obviously making algorithms which are complex enough um, that you can put that simple seed in and they would generate something that was just so far removed and, and our brains couldn't recognize it as a simple um, string of pseudo-random numbers. I think, you know, looking at that, I'm, I'm really excited now. I mean, obviously I was a, a big fan of the whole idea of flying down on planets before, but I just can't wait for the expansion where, you know, we're going to actually be able to explore you know, some of this diversity with the, uh, with the various different planets. I think that's going to be a great addition to the, uh, to the franchise. Speaking about a great addition to the franchise, passenger yachts and luxury liners. Now, obviously in previous uh, Elite games in the Frontier uh, frontier and frontier first encounters you know passengers were always transported around in nice big metal rectangular boxes called passenger cabins that you loaded onto your ship and the ship equipment this has now changed and now we have purpose-built passenger liners and in the newsletter they've given us two examples they've given us a um, a medium class and a low class one named the dolphin and the orca yeah as you might imagine the names actually represent what the ships look like and these are some of the prettiest ships i have seen not only in elite dangerous so far but in actually any of the the sci-fi stuff i've looked at they are so so gorgeous okay alan uh, i know it's been a while but you know maybe give us a bit of an update as to what's going on in the writer section you know, people people are writing. There is quite a lot in the writers' forum going on, but it's 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 quite bitty. It's specific questions. People are asking about very small things that they need for their particular novels. That's you know that's as it as it would be expected at this stage. We've we've had no no arrivals from any any of the the known latecomers. It is nice to to have a bit more information about how Elite Chronicles is going to work, but that's not been occurring in the writers' forum. So yeah, so basically, it is a case of Michael. You know, giving us answers to things that uh, that we're asking about. So essentially, that's where the writers' forum is. This week's travel comes from Lisa Wolf from Elite Anthologies. It's entitled "Today." Today, written by Lisa Wolf, read by Christopher Jarvis. The planet below came into view as the asp emerged from the docking bay. She took a moment to study it, enjoying its beauty from this altitude, though she knew it was now barren and uninhabitable at the surface. She brought herself back to reality and urged the asp out of the way of other traffic. Perhaps one day she'd return to the planet she once called home. Perhaps one day it would be habitable again. Today, however, was not that day. Today a new life began. 
Today she had her own ship and cargo. Today she owned the universe. Okay, so that's going to do it for the development section. We'll move straight on into the community corner. Okay, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we are going to do a small competition. This is something that came from uh, from LaveCon. For those people that weren't there, uh, what we're asking for the competition is for people to send us their best second technician comedy sketches. These will be reviewed by an independent panel of, well, us four, and the best one will win an A0 size poster from LaveCon, signed by all the development team at Frontier Development Cambridge. And yes, it does include the man himself, David Braben, and, of course, Michael Brooks. Uh, for more details, go to layradio.com forward slash competition. And another thing that came up recently, which will slot quite happily into Community Corner, is another Kickstarter. Uh, now, this was quite a, quite an odd one, actually. It, uh, it started up by Psychomesh in the forum mentioning it. And it's a little game called Ethereum, which, when you look at it, looks very much like a Wing Commander type of clone. It's another space sim arcade type of game, which looks very, very good. It's at a very late stage of development. It should be released sometime in October. And they were looking for around about £25,000, sorry, $25,000 just to do the final polishing, so the music, the sound effects, and um, you know, some of the voiceovers. So, you know, Psychomesh mentioned it on the on the forum, and actually the comments page uh, in the last day for Ethereum was very similar to the comments page uh, for Elite Dangerous. There was a lot and lots of people from the Elite community getting behind this project, um, and again, just trying to help another another spaceship simulation game uh, coming into the. Uh, coming into the world so if you haven't had a chance to go and look at it check it out on kickstarter and then when october comes around come and jump on board that's going to do it for the community corner this week um just leads on to feedback uh, obviously we've been away for a while but uh, itunes reviews thank you very much to sellerson 73 darklight engine lover m dis commander 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 brito john 5432 and nexus reject and we've had emails from David McGrath and John Heritage and Ray O'Meara's. Thank you very much to you guys for getting in touch. When it comes to iTunes reviews, uh, we're, we're 49 reviews. We've got a fantastic 49 five-star reviews from everybody. So thank you very, very much for you know, providing us with that feedback. It's now a race for you guys to see who gets the big 5-0 review up there. Uh, and also, I've had a few more reviews for uh, Escape Velocity. Have you? Uh, yes. So, uh, <laughs> shout out, thank you to uh, uh, Jason WD, uh, Commander Commander also, and uh, Phoenix Defire for uh, very kind reviews uh, of Escape Velocity on iTunes. And also, a big thank you to anyone who may have reviewed Escape Velocity in other territories. Um, we obviously only see the, uh, the European reviews here. But if there's anybody else listening internationally and you have reviewed... Uh, either the Lave Radio podcast or Escape Velocity. Thank you very much for your reviews. Unfortunately, we can't see them, uh, but thank you for them anyway. Great stuff. That's going to do it for this show. If you want to contact the show, you can at info at laveradio.com, at Lave Radio on Twitter. You can search for us on Facebook. And if you'd like to call us on Skype, you can listen to our cheesy answering machine message at lave.radio. If you'd like to get involved in Retro Lave, we muster at 8.30. You can join us on Skype at lave.radio or fozzer101. And check out our feed on Twitter and Facebook for more updates. That's going to do it for this week's episode, guys. And we will see you next week.
she's using their um, Animal Crossing profile as, as their picture. <laughs> if it's the new you thing, then I'm, I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I should have said, has anyone got any questions for Selena Frost King? Say, yeah, how angry were you when Thor smashed up your city? <laughs> <laughs> That would at least be funny. (laughs) What was that? Lager. Ah, okay. Uh, (laughs) I tell you what, the the quality, you're coming through quite well there, Fozza. I mean, you must have gagged that prostitute quite quite well. (laughs) (laughs) Are we recording or not? I am, yeah. Okay, fine. In which case, I can tell you that tonight, folks, I am pimping. You're pimping? I am pimping, which stands for podcasting in my pants. Oh, no. <laughs> couldn't you have told us that after the recording? <clears throat> no, no, he really couldn't. He had to tell us now. That's why he set it up and asked if we were recording. <laughs> well, I mean, let's be, let's be honest, Fozza. You look more, you know, roadie than rock star, don't you? Uh, this is true. Yeah, this is this is very true. Unless you're talking about meatloaf, I don't think I can really pass myself off as a rock star. Well, you know, might say Fred. Might. Uh... 